Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by Living Word Church. We trust that as you hear the Word of God preached, you'll be encouraged and equipped to love God and do His will. If you're looking for a church home, please feel free to visit our Sunday morning worship service at 10 a.m. or visit our website at www.livingwordchurch.cc. And now for our message. Drop down into that story, and all of a sudden our lives look entirely different because their purpose isn't to do this or that as the world might, but to faithfully live in that story, right? We're kind of actors in it as time goes on. And so this morning, if you hear me say the story of the Bible or the story of the Old Testament, I need you to respond by saying, which has become our story. Should we practice that? Okay, so um, the Bible is a really important book because the story of the Bible uh, tells us how we are to live in the world in a way that honors Jesus. See how simple that is? It's kind of a clunky phrase. Sorry, I couldn't make it more like punchy. Which has become our story doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but we're going to try that this morning, okay? So there's lots of grace for you when you forget, but I will try to remind you. Um, this, this passage this morning, um, it deals with what I'm going to call the politics of Jesus. It deals with Jesus' identity as the Son of God and what that identity means for him, that he is the rightful ruler over all the nations of the earth. Okay, we're going to make sense of this as we go on, but I want to preface by pointing that out to us. And actually, Brandon has a video that he's going to play to kind of introduce us to that this morning. So cue that whenever you're ready. Some of you are thinking, that's just about the lamest thing I've ever heard. I think my sister Faith is probably thinking that. 
And some of you, perhaps more like me, are thinking that's one of the most remarkable things a human being can possibly do, right? So this clip is from, can anyone guess? I think it's said, actually. Cheat. It's said. It's from the Messiah, which is um, super famous oratorio, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe means it is a musical piece that includes both soloists and an entire choir and an orchestra. I think that's what an oratorio means. Um, I was introduced to Handel, um, the, the writer that handles Messiah, uh, when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. They do a big performance every year, and somehow, being who I am, uh, a lot of my close friends at Moody ended up being in the sacred music program, which, if you know me, isn't me. Um, but they were just incredible musicians, some of these guys. A few of them sang at our wedding. Uh, and they sang, you know, stuff like this. And I just, I learned to appreciate the skill that that takes and just how remarkable it is uh, to sing the notes and the way they're laid out and so on and so forth. But anyway, the intricacies of that are not why I played that clip for us this morning. Um, the Messiah, this, this big piece, which is, you know, a couple of hours long, that's just a minute or two there, is traditionally associated with the Christmas season, but it's not just about the birth of Christ. It's actually a three-part musical piece. Uh, and the first part deals with prophecies about the, de- uh, the, the coming Messiah and God, you know, promising that he would come. And it does deal with the actual birth of Jesus, the Messiah. The second part deals with his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And then the sort of early church and the beginning of the preaching of the gospel. And then the third part deals with um, the future coming kingdom and the fullness of the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed as the good news. And so uh, this clip comes from sort of near the end of part two. So um, I'm not sure how well you could hear that, but the lyric he was singing, which he saw in the title, was why do the nations so furiously rage together? And this comes from a, a part in the Messiah where the early church has begun to proclaim the gospel that Jesus gave to them that the Messiah has indeed come and that he is the rightful ruler of all the earth. And so the nations begin to rage when they hear that news, right? Because as we know, the nations of the earth, whether now or 2000 years ago, they don't want to be ruled by anyone but themselves, right? They want to be sovereignly independent. But when the Messiah shows up and says, hey, I am the one who rightfully rules over all of you nations, they don't like that so much. They begin to rage, okay? And so Psalm 2 lays this out for us. The writer of Psalm 2, which I believe we'll have behind me, kind of wonders, why do they, it begins by wondering, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why are the kings of the earth making plans against the Lord and his anointed? And then a couple verses later, this person, the Lord's anointed, tells us, the reader, what it was God said to them. And what God said was, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. There it is. The ends of the earth, your possession. So as you and I, kind of contemporary readers, are reading through Psalms 2, Psalm 2, and like, why are the nations raging? What's that all about? There's the answer, right? That they're upset at the fact that someone else has come to rule over them. And then the psalm ends with sort of a word of warning to those nations of the earth. It says, therefore, you kings be wise and you rulers be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or acknowledge his rightful rule or he will be angry 
and your way will lead to destruction. That'll preach, right? I mean, that's, there's a lot there to be had for us. It will preach. Unfortunately, the question for this morning is whether or not Luke 4 is going to preach, which we will find out in a few minutes. But I point us to Psalm 2 because in my experience as a Christian growing up in the church and in my experience with other Christians, uh, I know for myself and I think for many of us, we're not always quite sure what to do with the idea, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. We hear a lot about that, but I'm not sure that we always actually feel real comfortable, comfortable saying this is what that means or this is why that's important. And my best guess would be that for a lot of us, we kind of reason that it's important for Jesus to be the Son of God because that means that he's divine, right? And we know that we are sinners in need of redemption, right? We're in need of a sacrifice for sin that we can't pay ourselves. And in fact, no human being can pay it lest they be divine. So it's crucial for Jesus to be the Son of God, to be divine, because only he then can make the atoning sacrifice we need for our sins, right? And you know what? That's 100% true. Jesus is the divine Son of God who makes a way, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, who makes the, the payment that no one else could pay. That's 100% true. But in Psalm 2, the emphasis is just a little bit different. And what comes clear to us in Psalm 2, it's maybe rather subtle, but it's there when we see it, is simply that the Son of God is the anointed one. Okay, do you see that? The psalm begins by saying that the nations are raging against the Lord's anointed. And then the anointed one goes on to say that he has become God's son. It's a simple equation. The son of God and the anointed one are one and the same thing. I wonder if any of you have ever heard someone point out the seemingly simple fact that Christ is not Jesus' last name. You ever heard that? I remember the first time I hope it wasn't when I was in Bible college, but I remember the first time that I heard that. I was like, oh, really? It sounds just like Jesus Christ. Sometimes with our friends, I'll jokingly pray, like if we're praying together, I'll pray to Mr. Christ just to get a good laugh out of things. But in fact, Christ is not Jesus's last name. In the Old Testament, uh, so bear with me here. This isn't crucial, but just stick with me on this. In the New Testament, we hear Jesus called the Christ, And that's the same word as anointed one in the Old Testament, okay? And the word for old, in in the Old Testament for anointed one, I don't know how to speak or pronounce Hebrew, but it's something like Mashiach. It's the word Messiah. So basically, all, all we need to know is that Messiah and Christ and anointed one and even king, they have slightly different emphases, emphases, but they all kind of serve a similar function. And what that is, is that they're not last names. Christ isn't a last name. No, these are royal titles. These are titles given to someone who, who carries the weight of what they mean. And what we learn in Psalm 2 and in the story of the Bible, which has become our story, we'll get better at that. I'll keep you here all day if I have to. What we learn in the story of the Bible is that Jesus is that person, right? So when we say Jesus Christ, we don't mean Jesus whose dad's last name was Christ or something. We mean that Jesus is God's Messiah. Every time, that, that struck me when, I, when, that, when it hit me deeply, it, it changed me, right? That every time I say Jesus Christ from reading scripture or praying or whatever, every time you say that, you are making a declaration about who Jesus is, that he is the anointed one. 
He's the son of God. He's the Messiah who has come to make things right in the world, to bring fulfillment to God's purposes. And the roots of this idea are all over the story of the Old Testament. Yeah, okay. Maybe I'll cut some of those out. They're all over that story. I'll save you one there. So uh, this is all over the place, but let me just point out uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, probably one of the five most important chapters in the Old Testament. God makes a covenant with David, and he promises to establish David's throne and his kingdom forevermore. And we know that David will die, but God says he'll do it through one of David's offspring. And he says to David, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And we know that David has a son, biologically, Solomon, who rules after him, but we can't really read that without catching the deeper resonance of the son of God, right? And then even there, I'm reminded of that beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 9 that fits so well during the Christmas season, where we learn, where we hear from Isaiah, to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with righteousness and justice forevermore. So this theme is all over the pages of the Old Testament. And when we come to the gospel of Luke, the story of the Bible is haunted with this theme, right? Like if you were brand new and never had any connection to Christianity, never read the Bible, and you just read this story, you'd get to the first chapter of Luke, supposing you skipped the other Gospels and just went there first, right? You read the whole Old Testament, you get to Luke, and you, you should, at least, feel this sense of anticipation and haunting even. This mysterious figure, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Anointed One, is coming. He's been promised, and you're waiting in anticipation to see what the fulfillment of that will be. And in the very first chapter of Luke, which we covered a couple of weeks ago, the angel comes to Mary, right, with an announcement. And he says to Mary, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. And then Mary sings this beautiful song in response that clearly indicates that she knows what that means, right? That her child will be the son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, who will make things right in the world. And then just a couple chapters later, just actually before today's passage, Jesus is baptized by John in the river. And what happens? The spirit of God comes on him in the form of a dove, which is, it feels a lot like an anointing, right? The spirit of God coming on him. And then the voice of God speaks to him from the heavens and says what? You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then just after that, we get a long and seemingly very boring genealogy. That's the worst part. And it tells us who Jesus' dads, 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 dads are, right? There's 30 or 40 something lines recorded there. But what's interesting is that we know from what the angel just said that Jesus isn't actually Joseph's son, right? Mary has Jesus born as a virgin, But almost as if to prove a point, Luke writing this gospel shows us in the genealogy that Joseph, Jesus' dad, is descended in the line of King David, 
right? We heard David is the one to whom the Messiah, the everlasting throne and kingdom was promised. And then he shows further that both Jesus and David are descended sons of Adam at the very beginning. And Adam is, of course, the son of who? Of God. He was the first one, right? So this theme is everywhere. It's everywhere. And thus, it should strike us that when we read Luke chapter 4, and Jesus goes into the wilderness and meets the devil, the first thing the devil asks him is what? If you are the son of God. Doesn't that sound like Genesis? Did God really say you're his son? And I think that's intentional because Luke is about fulfillment, right? So Jesus here is being re-tempted by the devil, if you will. And Jesus is going to succeed where Adam failed. He's bringing fulfillment to the story of the Bible. Man, I'm glad I married her. The rest of you guys are sorely disappointing. And so Jesus is asked this question, if you, are you really the son of God? And his response is striking. Yes, God did really say that. And you know what he also said? Man shall not live by bread alone. Yes, God did really say that. And he also said, you shall worship the Lord your God and only serve him. Yes, God did really say that. And he also said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's just kind of outwitting the devil. So I guess Luke 4, I hope, will preach here. And here's what I want us to see, right? There's, there's, there's a bunch we could see in this passage, right? We need to notice how the devil's strategy is to come to Jesus and call into question his identity as a son of God. Has anyone in this room ever experienced that strategy? The devil, in one form or another, showing up and calling into question your identity as a son or daughter of God, right? I've been there. We need to notice that. And we need to see further how Jesus responds. What does he do? Every time the devil tempts him, scripture comes spilling out of Jesus. And it, it reads as if Jesus isn't like, oh, I got to think of a verse to get the devil to... No, it's, it's so deeply in his bones that it's his instinct to respond with the very words of God. That's what we need to do. Maybe that's your New Year's resolution, right? Get the word of God deep down into your bones. That'd be a good thing for you to do this year. But what I want to point out outside of those and other things is the actual content of the temptation that Jesus faces, right? So we've already seen that Jesus is bringing fulfillment to the story of the Old Testament. Okay, my wife and my mom so far are in the lead. <laughs> my wife and my mom. So Jesus is bringing fulfillment, but there's more of that here in this, right? Every time Jesus is tempted, he quotes scripture. Great, that's fantastic. That's a cute little Bible lesson. No, what's happening here is every time Jesus responds with scripture, it's coming, all three of those references come from Deuteronomy, right? In that, that chunk of Deuteronomy, Israel is in the wilderness, which is where the devil led Jesus. And Israel is struggling to be obedient to God and to allow his purposes to come to pass in their lives. And they fail. I mean, you guys, most of us will know the story of the, of the Old Testament. That was in, there you go. That was an unintentional one. Most of us know that that story is filled with Israel's failures. 
Over and over and over again, they fail and they fail and they fail. So Jesus here is referencing that story three times to make clear to us that he has come to succeed where Israel failed. He's bringing fulfillment to the story. Jesus succeeds where they failed. And I think it's important for us to notice that each of the devil's temptations are actually based on a measure of truth, right? Maybe you've experienced that. I know I have. But the truth is, God does want people to be fed. And he does have the power to make that happen, right? That's true. The son of God does rightly deserve authority and splendor from all the nations of the earth. That's true. And God does have the power to protect his people from harm and danger. All these things are true. But what Jesus knows, which is at the heart of what God, I think, has to say to us this morning. What Jesus knows is that you can't build the kingdom using the devil's tools. You can't build the kingdom using the devil's tools. You can't achieve God's ends with the devil's means, right? To do so would be to abandon God's ends and to end up achieving what the devil wants achieved. And that's really the devil's offer to Jesus, isn't it? Yeah, 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 you're the son of God, but wouldn't you rather get what's coming to you now rather than later? Who knows what it's going to cost you? Hint, hint, right? We know what it costs Jesus to do it God's way. The devil's offer is, wouldn't you rather just have it my way? It's not going to cost you that. It's not going to hurt as bad. Wouldn't you rather take a little shortcut and do it this way? All you've got to do is just worship me. and We'll all be yours. And what I feel compelled to suggest to us this morning is that that very same offer is on the table for us in a unique way this year. It's an election year in our country. And for the next 10 months, from every side, we are going to be asked the very same question. Don't you want authority over the kingdom? Don't you want it to happen your way? Don't you have a vision for the world that you want to see come to pass? All it takes is a little worship. Just pledge your allegiance and your loyalty to me, and I'll make it happen for you. And at least if I'm honest with myself, that's pretty hard to refuse. Because as a Christian, we have a very clear vision for how we want the world to run. Amen? We believe that the nations of the earth belong to the Son of God. That they're Jesus' rightful inheritance. That he is Messiah and Lord and King. And he's the rightful ruler over all of those things. We believe with Isaiah that the government rests on his shoulders. But we have to remember that we can't build the kingdom using the devil's tools. Now, please don't hear me saying that all politics and government are the devil's tools. They're not. They sometimes are. But they're not always. Right? That's not the point here. What I want us to see is that God's vision for the world will come to pass. But it will happen the way God chooses to make it happen. In God's timing. Right? We will build the kingdom of Jesus using the king's tools, not the devil's tools. And the tools of Jesus are not the tools of manipulation 
or coercive politics or violence, right? Our approach to this thing, our role of bearing witness to God's kingdom, our approach in that is not, we better get as many Christians into high office so that they can pass legislation that will turn the kingdom, the world into the kingdom. That's not the way Jesus does it. He's not concerned about that. It's not found actually anywhere in the story of the Bible. Thanks, mom. It's not, that's not found in the Bible. It's not found in the gospels. It's not found anywhere in the New Testament. I don't think you can find it in the old either. That's not the approach that Jesus lays out for us. Jesus himself didn't try to become Caesar, right? And you know what, church? He could have. In fact, that's exactly what the devil offered him. To be the ultimate Caesar. Not just over Rome. Not just over Israel. Over all the nations of the earth. Jesus, you can have it right now. And Jesus refused him. The kingdom building tools that Jesus gives to us and that Jesus showed us how to use are the tools of forgiveness and peacemaking and nonviolence and reconciliation. The kingdom comes by way of love, right? Nothing else. If God's end is love, if that's where the whole thing is going, then the way we get there has to be love too. Just wait till a couple weeks from now, Dave or Andy will be preaching Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Or better yet, go home today and read Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, which is Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all laid out right there. It's effectively for Jesus, it's the constitution of his kingdom. And it makes clear to us that the politics of Jesus are a politics of love. And I want to point out one more thing there. Jesus does have politics. Jesus is not partisan. The kingdom of God is not partisan. It doesn't wholesale endorse any political party or notion in the world we live in, the nation we live in. It's not partisan, but it is political. I mean, think about the very idea of a kingdom. It's a king ruling over a people. That's politics to a T, right? Fundamentally, politics is simply about how a group of people organizes and lives their shared life together. Isn't that exactly what church is? Isn't that what we spend all our time trying to do? Figure out how we can organize and live our shared life together in a way that honors Jesus and reflects him, right? So there is this deep, real sense in which being a Christian, living as a citizen of God's kingdom, is a political thing to do. An author, Eugene Peterson, actually says that the gospel is more political than anybody ever imagines, but in a way that nobody ever guesses. It's more political than we'd ever think, just not in the way we would instinctively imagine. Maybe we should write that on our bathroom mirrors this new year. The gospel church is political because it's the announcement that there's a new king in town, right? It's the announcement that Jesus has come to receive his rightful rule over the nations. And someday, this is how the story of the Bible works itself out. Yeah, that was my bad. This is the way the story works, is that that kingdom and that rule of Jesus right now is for his people. 
The rule of Jesus, the politics of Jesus are for the people of Jesus. That's us. We are called to live our shared life the way that Jesus lays out for us. Someday, according to the story, yeah, this man, this is a bad idea. Talk me out of this next time. Uh, someday, according to the story of the Bible, the rule of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus will be over all the nations. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Someday that will be the case. But right now, the rule of Jesus is for us. Our task is not to force it on the world, to coerce the world into it. Our job is to live it, to embody it, and then we just invite the world to come and join. That's the way it works in Scripture. Is Old or New Testament, the people of God say yes to God's call or command to live this way. Live this way that shows onlookers what I'm like, God says. Show them unmistakably that God cares about these things and these people. And then just extend the invitation. You like what you see? There's plenty of room. We can plant another church, right? Come and join us in living God's ways where there's peace and hope, justice, right? That's the way it works in the story of scripture. That people don't enter the kingdom of God by way of coercion or force, but by way of conversion, right? It's not you have to live this way, but you must be born again. That's how people will enter the kingdom that Jesus has called us into. And we get a glimpse of that kingdom and of the politics of Jesus at the end of our passage this morning. Jesus picks up the scroll. It's kind of funny. It almost reads like Jesus is just at church and they're like, hey, preach. And the attendant hands him the scroll and he opens it up and he reads from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. I am the anointed one. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Church, that's the way that Jesus wants his people to live their life, right? This year, we're going to hear a bunch of different ways. Like, oh, you should be living this way or that way and it should all work this way. Let's bear in mind what Jesus says, that the priority for his people is to care for the poor and to set the oppressed free And to remove the yoke on those who are under burden. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Because in all of this, Jesus then says what? Today, the scripture is fulfilled. In other words, this has come to pass in me. This new way of life, this new politics, this new government, this new kingdom is here. And I rule over it. And I invite you to come and be part of it. So, What does it look like then? What does it look like for us to be obedient to that? Particularly this year. What does it look like for us, the people of Jesus, to live faithful to the story of the Bible? Which has become our story. What does it look like for us to live as faithful actors in this story which has become our own? I don't know. But I am going to give you three suggestions. Number one, prioritize 
embodying the politics of Jesus over engaging in the politics of the world. Prioritize the politics of Jesus over the politics of the world. Maybe that looks like spending more time loving your neighbor than watching Fox or CNN or arguing on social media. Number two, in the words of my favorite theologian, go ahead and vote, but just don't expect too much. I hope you're not offended by that. It's a joke. The point is, the point is that Jesus is Lord and the coming of his kingdom does not depend on your vote. And that is a good thing. Amen. You are released. No matter how many people and politicians tell you in the next 10 months that it all depends on your vote, it doesn't. The kingdom is coming. In fact, the kingdom of God is among you because wherever two or three are gathered, there I am among them. So don't worry about it too much. If you want to go ahead and vote, because that's a a very tangible way, perhaps, to show love to your neighbor, which is what it's all about, do that. But don't worry about it too much. Jesus is Lord. And number three, which we'll do now, a way that we can participate in the story that has become our story, is to celebrate communion together. Paul says that when we take the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. He doesn't say that we feel sad about it. He doesn't say that when we take the bread and the cup, we need to work up some feelings of guilt so that we can appreciate Jesus. What he says is, we proclaim the Lord's death. Because what Paul knew is that in the devil's view, the cross was his victory over Jesus, his conquest over Jesus. But in God's view, the cross was the coronation of Jesus. Right? That on the cross, with an ironic crown of thorns on his head, the sign above Jesus said what? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, Messiah, Son of God, the Lord. That's who Jesus is. And that's who he became, in a sense, as he hung on the cross. And so when we take communion together, we proclaim his death, that he has, in fact, become King and Lord and rightful ruler And that we bow to no one but him. So I want to ask the ushers to come up um, as we prepare to to pass out the communion elements. Um, Before we pass them out, I just want to connect us back to the beginning. So after Handel's Messiah sings about the nations raging and the peoples and kings and rulers of the earth plotting in vain because God's anointed Messiah has come, it then sings this. Hang on just a second with those guys. It says this. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The Lord God almighty reigns. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, his Messiah, his son. And he shall reign forever and ever. He is king of kings. And Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. So though the nations rage, the anointed son of God emerges victorious at the end of the story of the Bible. And the people of God then break out in glorious rejoicing. Hallelujah for the Lord God almighty reigns. Amen. I've asked Brandon 
to play this for us while communion is passed out. So if you guys can go ahead and distribute that while the song plays, then hold that and we'll celebrate it together when the song is done.
to God. Amen. That is the song that the whole world will one day sing. Two caveats. It won't be that white. And I can't promise God will help you sing well. Otherwise, someday the whole world will sing that song together. Here's the catch, church. We sing it today. Right? We are the people of the fullness of God's kingdom in the future who live in the present. We're an outpost or an embassy of the future kingdom in the present day. So we live the way of Jesus, the politics of Jesus. As we embody his kingdom, we invite people to be a part of that with us. And so we sing that song today. And so that's how I want to frame our communion this morning. I think we have this maybe on a slide. But I just want to take these together and declare the words of that song. So let's take the bread together and say together, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Amen. There will be laughter at the end too. And the blood of Christ... The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.